A good day to you on this April 28th, Wednesday morning. Real Talk, Ryan Jesperson here with you. Uh, alongside producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Samuel G. Brooks. Hey, hey. I thought Hello. I would uh, start today's show, the two of you. Good morning. Uh, I thought I'd start the show uh, with a haiku for you. And uh, I didn't write it. Here, Sam, we can call up my screen here for those that are watching us live on YouTube here or watching later on YouTube for that matter. What's up? Uh, this from... <laughs> I didn't actually look at the handle until right this minute, and now we're doing the show live, and I guess I got to say the handle is Nostra Fart Face or Nostra Wear a Damn Mask. Um, I assume at some point it was Nostradamus. I don't know. Uh, Nostra Fart Face has passed along a haiku for us as we kick off the show. As a matter of fact, just responding uh, about nine minutes ago to the tweet I put out talking about the lineup today. It's it's unbelievable lineup this morning, by the way. Here's the haiku. Life is wonderful. Death is inevitable. Enjoy your time left. He goes on to say, thank you for contributing to my enjoyment. Real talk. Sarah, Sam, Jespo, all for one and one for all. The three talketeers. That's a heck of a tweet for a Wednesday morning. Talketeers. The three that. Yeah. I think that feels to me more like a single use one. <laughs> one and done. One, one and done, but it's pretty good. Okay, it's, okay, okay. I'm the, I'm the only bad. one in the room the that is, that is pro talketeers. So That's fine. All right. <laughs> Looking yeah. forward to Brent Totterin's going to join us uh, in just a little bit. We're going to be talking about civic planning. We're going to talk about aging in place. Um, and uh, Dr. Uh, Yeon Jung Lee. Uh, a researcher, a social work researcher out of the University of Calgary is also going to be joining uh, some work being done there to understand how we build our cities, how we build our communities. We're going to talk to Carla Peck today. Uh, they've just launched a new web resource this around. Uh, and I know it feels like people across Canada are paying attention to the story of Alberta's curriculum. Uh, it's a curriculum overhaul that's prompted some international jurisdictions to say uh, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, even within Canada, the Northwest Territories used to use Alberta's curriculum. Now they've said, eh. They're, we're exploring other options. Uh, Alberta's curriculum, the reputation of it has taken a bit of a clobbering lately, and, and Carla Peck has been staying on top of that. We'll be discussing that with her coming up in, I guess, about a half hour's time. Uh, a new web resource for parents, educators, people that are following this story across the country. Uh, Chief Alan Adam of uh, the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation, the Athabasca Tribal Council yesterday, releasing, uh, I mean, basically... It's a news release that's one of the more scathing ones that I've ever seen in my professional career. Uh, taking aim at the provincial government, the 11 First Nation and Métis Nations of the Regional Municipality of Wood Buffalo. You remember we spoke with Mayor Don Scott there uh, yesterday. They've declared a state of emergency around uh, the fact that that basically the, the entire region, I hate to put it this way, but it's a COVID hotspot. And the numbers that you're seeing reported or not even including the numbers at oil sands camps and the like because for some reason uh we've learned for some reason that the folks that are sick working at the camps are having their cases counted uh in the jurisdiction where they pay property tax basically where their registered residences so so newfoundland may be showing some cases that aren't there uh, you know hinton may be showing some cases that aren't there uh, they're all up in the camps like in the hundreds but even still, without those numbers, it's a real problem. And Mayor Don Scott talked to us yesterday about, you know, through the mayor's office, that through that perspective, what needs to happen 
I asked him about Premier Jason Kenney's assertion, Alberta's premier, that a big part of this problem is indigenous vaccine hesitancy. And if you saw the show yesterday or if you've checked it out since we did it live, you'll know that the mayor said, yeah, that's not a thing. It's not accurate at all. As a matter of fact, he came on the show to say that. Well, then Chief Alan Adams spoke up in the afternoon and we got in touch with him directly. And he's going to be joining us in in just under an hour from now. Basically, I mean, here he is in the news release yesterday, quote, for almost 13 months, we have followed the leadership of Jason Kenney. And where has it gotten us to last place in the country when it comes to the rate of spread? More than double the worst outbreak in Ontario and tied, if you can believe it, with Delhi, India. Whatever Alberta has been doing so far has been a failure. Chief Adam went on to say, maybe the premier, they, they make a bunch of uh, suggestions. And we'll get into them with Chief Adam when he joins us. He says, maybe the premier could try some of these out for a change. Literally anything would be better than what he has been doing. Our region is losing the battle with COVID-19 and we cannot accept the lack of meaningful action and response any longer. That from Chief Alan Adam. I'm sure that typically thought goes into those types of things. Before you release something like that publicly, most especially when you're speaking on behalf of a tribal council that represents 11 First Nation and Métis Nations, he's speaking on behalf of thousands of people. So that's a remarkable release. We'll be talking to to, uh, Chief Adam around 920 live, 1120 Eastern, if you're watching, if you're listening later uh, again in about 40 minutes from now or so. And then and then we're going to be talking about death ed. What is it? Grief education. Uh, Jeremy Allen was was put all over our radar by several of you based on conversations we've been having recently. And, and some of these conversations about, you know, death or mortality or, or life haven't been inherently negative. You know, we've been talking about, for example, that seniors of humanity web project, that amazing one that we got into late last week. We've been talking about things like long COVID and we've been talking about mental health week, which is coming up and, and we'll be of course, bringing you some feature interviews through that. And a whole bunch of you reached out and said, you've got to look into what Jeremy Allen's doing as a grief educator. And so he's a, he's a funeral, funeral director. He's an embalmer and a, and a so-called grief educator. We're going to find out what that means. That's coming up before the end of the show today. So a lot of ground to cover. Plus, I'm sure that some of you are wondering if we're going to dig into a story uh, that's been reported around user fees in Alberta's provincial park, in Kananaskis Provincial Park, which is a pretty special part of the country. If you've ever been there, if you've been there, you know, I basically grew up in the Kananaskis. And so it's an area that's near and dear to my heart. Um, the province is looking at imposing uh, the province is imposing a $90 user fee. And we'll get into some of those details. They say they've been slammed through the pandemic. They had five million visitors through there last year, four million through Banff National Park, five million through Kananaskis last year. They say they can't keep up with it, especially with budget cuts. Garbage is piling up. They need to be able to ensure that the park's. You know, the bills are paid, so they're introducing user fees and a whole bunch of you going, yeah, we've heard this before. And there's no way that the fees collected are actually going back into the parks. And this is BS. And why has no one been consulted? And people are having problems with it. And I wonder if based on a couple of just a couple of quick comments before we started the show today, if if our, our new producer, Sarah Hoyles, and I might not see eye to eye on this thing. Are you inherently opposed to user fees? Full stop. I mean, is, is there room for conversation on that one with you? Or when you see this story, $90 an annual user fee for Kananaskis, do you bristle? Um, I would say that there's an initial bristle. Absolutely. Um, 
to me, this is just a way of taxing <laughs> without calling it a tax. And to your point, uh, yeah, there's no guarantee that it's actually going to go towards what it's being said to go towards. So, a friend of mine said to me yesterday, though, I'm not using that park. I mean, why should I be paying for the park, the upkeep of the park, the maintenance of the park? Why shouldn't the people that use it pay for it? Okay, so you could take the exact same argument for the fire department. <laughs> yeah. You could take the same exact, like, you know, I, well, I don't have a fire, so I don't need to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not how living in community works in my in my uh, estimation, I want to move on right there because I want to let what you said just sit there because you used you invoked the word which I love and I use it all the time on the show, which is community, and I love it, and it tees up perfectly our first conversation here. Okay, in just a second. Uh, first of all, why don't we remind you that the show has a presenting sponsor, and that's the team at Bitcoin Well that's been with us since since day one, not day one like November twenty third when we first did show number one, but like day one when we started talking about this project, they said, "Hey, we love a good startup." They said, we love being on the innovative cutting edge of something, the modern interpretation of something traditional. You see all these parallels between what we're doing and what they're doing? We thought it was a pretty great partnership. And then we started utilizing their expertise and their services. And well, we haven't looked back. All I recommend to you is if you have questions about crypto, go straight to the source here at Bitcoin. Well, they'll help you figure it out. And you'll find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So how much attention do we pay to the, you know, the demographic implications of city planning or how we build our communities? It's something that social work researcher Dr. Yunjung Lee out of the University of Calgary and Brent Totterin, a city planning consultant and an urbanist, uh, have both been looking at through the courses of their career in different contexts uh, with Dr. Lee, a, a specific research project, uh, taking a close look at some of Calgary's, if you want to call them legacy communities. And uh, for Brent, as former chief planner for Vancouver, former manager of Center City Planning and Design and the chief neighborhood planner in Calgary and founding president of the Council for Canadian urbanism to the both of you welcome to real talk and, and and thanks for making time for us brent why don't we start with you first when when we talk about the demographic implications of the way that we plan and build our cities um dr lee will be talking about an aging population our older citizens but has this always been on the radar of city planners at least decent ones well, since the baby boomers came along, you know, I remember uh, the book uh, when I first graduated from uh, planning school in the early 90s. The big book was David Foote's Boom, Bust and Echo back then. Uh, and it was talking about how to basically prepare for the fact that the boomers were going to get old. And we planners uh, are supposed to be looking forward. So we've been talking about this for decades now. I'm not sure um, uh, we've been proactively planning differently as a result. But the interesting thing that's sort of come around is that we've realized that overly planning for an aging population wasn't necessarily the right move. Like one of the things that was being discussed at that time was we're going to need a not, lot more senior centers. We're going to a, a, need a lot more seniors community, specialized communities only for that demographic to plan for the aging population. And of course, that's proven to not be true. I think that that's what the doctor's research has shown. And that's what my own analysis of the situation has shown as well. Dr. Lee, what, what prompted this specific 
research into these Calgary communities? How did this get on your radar? Uh, first of all, I'm living in Calgary right now. Um, I moved to Calgary uh, about eight years ago as a first uh, first pe- first time living in Canada. And then back then, my research was more likely population-based research, which is looking at uh, uh, entire population rather than specific community. And then as I longer I live in my own community, I feel like this is my home and I'd like to do research to contribute uh, people living in my same area, which is the city of Calgary, and then people living in my own uh, community and neighborhoods. Um, and that is a starting point. Uh, it got to in my in my radar for my research. So I'm taking a look at a, at a release from from the University of Calgary here, uh, and 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 it describes the work that you're doing. The headline reads: Civic infrastructure ill-equipped to serve an aging population. That will obviously concern some people. Where have you seen it ill-equipped from day one? I mean, what's really jumping out? Um, the, the project is still in the progress, in the process. So I can't really jump on the conclusion at this moment, but based on what we found so far at this moment is, so we basically look at, uh, which community in Calgary has more aging populations compared to entire city. And we also look at what about the accessibility in that specific community? And then what, what is the discrepancy when there are more aging people? And what about their uh, accessibility in that community? And then that would be the concern when there are more senior people are living in the community, but accessibility is not really, um, uh, is not well equipped for seniors uh, living in their own community as long as po- uh, possible, as long as they want. Brent, are there cities around the world or are there communities that are really doing this well? Well, you you've, you've, you have cities in other parts of the world that have a basic built form that wasn't so specialized like we built our suburbs, particularly around the car, where, you know, those kinds of neighborhoods and cities work better for everyone, not just for, for an aging population. And that's one of our actual lessons that we've learned. When we try to overly specialize neighborhoods, we can actually do things wrong and make them unpopular even for seniors. Uh, so there's other places that have built in more resiliency, the, the ability to what we call age in place, that are great communities uh, when you're young, great communities when you're raising a family, great communities when you're getting older. And, uh, and it's because it has a basic infrastructure, and I don't mean infrastructure like pipes, I mean housing diversity, where you can actually downsize within your neighborhood without having to move to another neighborhood, because you, what we found, what I found in all of my engagements with communities over 30 years of planning is people love their neighborhoods, they fall in love with their neighborhoods, and they won't downsize, even if they've got a, a house that's too big for them, and, and they feel is too big for them, unless there's a place they can downsize in their own neighborhood. Uh, so they'll stay uh, and, and they'll stay longer than they want to because they just don't want to leave their beloved neighborhood. And the problem is then 
their kids and their grandkids can't afford to live in that neighborhood. So the, the seniors are frustrated that they, they rarely see their kids and grandkids. And so you have this kind of freezing in amber of neighborhoods because the infrastructure isn't there. And I actually say that the first piece of infrastructure for aging in place in neighborhoods is actually diverse housing. But all of us on this call know that when more diverse housing is proposed in certain neighborhoods, including Calgary neighborhoods, it's incredibly controversial. It can be incredibly controversial, not in my backyard voices come out. And ironically, seniors have become one of the more um, uh, influential voices in that conversation because I've seen seniors come out to public hearings and say, I want to downsize in my neighborhood, but I can't. I want my kids and grandkids to be able to live in the same neighborhood my kids grew up in, that I live in, but they can't. Uh, and, and it's because we keep saying no to other other housing types. Now, it isn't just about housing. It's about infrastructure for walkability. It's about a lack of car dependency. That's the real ele elephant under the table because uh, not every, some seniors want to drive as long as they possibly can. Some seniors don't want to, and some seniors can't. So uh, you can't design in car dependency into your neighborhoods. And we've done that in a lot of our neighborhoods. Dr. Lee, you're, you're nodding your head as, as though he's probably addressing something directly that your research is turning up. Are you hearing that message? I do. And I totally agree with in terms of housing option they can choose because they can live in their multi-level with a lot of stairs house when they can really uh, walk up, uh, up and down anymore. But so they still want to stay in the same neighborhood, same community, but there's that option. So the only way is to stay in the same big house, just some uh, additional modifications, uh, just changing uh, the stair thing, but which is it's not easy option, which is not really ideal option. So yeah, in that way, uh, we need like a bigger picture to build a community in terms of supporting, promoting aging in place and aging in community. It's not just one piece to solve this problem and these issues. Huh. You know, it's it's interesting, and I'll, I'll put this to both of you. Maybe Brent, you first. It's uh, what I offer here is purely anecdotal. So, you know, Dr. Lee, as a researcher, you may wince when I, when I put this forward because I don't have evidence. I don't have survey results. But I do know that when I look around or talk to people in different communities um, and, and, and I'm biased because we live in a community that's actually a, a heritage, like an architectural protection zone. Uh, so there's certainly interesting attitudes there and people buy into that idea where the homes are 110 years old and, and don't you dare try to knock them down, let alone put in some modern monstrosity. Right. Uh, nobody's going to be splitting the lots here. And, and I see a lot of the pushback in other neighborhoods. Um, and, and it typically and, and again, here's where I could get into trouble, but it strikes me as though it's people that have lived in the neighborhood for a long time that feel a real connection there that feel that there's a certain character or vibe or definition to that neighborhood that would be compromised or destroyed if you started splitting lots or putting in skinny homes or lane houses or what have you. Brent, do you think that those attitudes are changing or, or is, is my anecdotal evidence maybe not representative of what you see? Well, uh, real life is a combination of data and anecdote because what's real to people is is what's real to them. And 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 when when certain people come out to public hearings, they they will share anecdotes with city councilors who make decisions. So I'm a data driven person, but I don't ignore anecdote because storytelling can be a po po powerful way 
of having better decisions being made. And you're quite right that, especially in so-called heritage neighborhoods, but also in neighborhoods that just have a certain age and vintage and a certain character and identity, it can be very hard to have a conversation about change. And that's an elephant under the table for a lot of issues, including the ability to age in place, which is what we're talking about now, but it's also relevant to issues of addressing affordability and homelessness and the climate emergency through lowered carbon footprints and increased public health by uh, designing back activity and, and, and nearness into our neighborhoods so we don't have to get into a car all the time. There's just all sorts of public interest issues where the issue of change in neighborhoods is where it's all landing, this debate about change. And what I always say is you can have a conversation about a, a neighborhood's identity and character without trying to freeze a neighborhood in amber, without trying to say that for everything to be compatible, everything has to be identical and you can't actually have some variety. I'm not talking about architectural style, flat versus pitched roofs. I'm talking about the ability for new people to come into neighborhoods, for aging people to be able to downsize within their neighborhoods, for different housing types to address issues of equity and even classism and racism that play out in these conversations about change in neighborhoods. So it's incredibly fraught with peril. It's incredibly complex. There's a lot of ideology and baggage that gets built into what's the right thing to do for neighborhoods. So it's very tough these days when you're having conversations at city councils about whether neighborhoods should change. I, I bring in the conversation about aging in place because you can have public health uh, experts and climate experts and mobility and transportation experts and pollution experts uh, talking about why neighborhoods need to be able to be more nimble, to be able to adapt and adjust over time and not freeze them in amber. But you can't underestimate the power of those anecdotes and storytelling. And yes, I've seen seniors, older populations in the past come out and say, we don't want our neighborhood to change. But I've seen that changing because for every one of those uh, kinds of voices, those kinds of messages, I see at least as many come out and say, we need our neighborhood to change because I can't downsize in my community. I, my, uh, I can't bring my uh, kids and grandkids back to their neighborhood because the school is under threat of closure because so many of us are staying in our houses. The kid population is down and, and they may be consolidating schools and closing our schools. Maybe the local retailing is struggling. Uh, the local community center can't justify its existence anymore because population is actually dropping. There's all sorts of things that are playing out that have nothing to do with uh, uh uh, n preventing change in neighborhoods, because what I always say is neighborhoods are changing all the time, whether you want them to or not. The question is, are they getting better or are they getting worse? Yeah, that's a great point. You know what? I love this from uh, Gilles Prefontaine's watching us live, uh, uses our hashtag Real Talk RJ on Twitter, says, Ryan, he says, you mentioned neighborhood character. Character is the people, not the buildings. He says keeping people within their communities with diverse housing is vital. That's a great comment from from Gilles. Uh, Dr. Lee, so you're taking a look. I mean, we'll get specific here. This will be for people that are familiar with the city of Calgary. Uh, some of the neighborhoods you're taking a look at Shawnee Slopes, uh, where I've lost about 300 golf balls. Uh, Maple Ridge, same story there. Uh, Point McKay, Parkland, where I grew up. Uh, Varsity in Midnapore, a nice South Calgary community. Seton and Greenwood, a Greenbrier, which are a little bit newer as well. Um, are these communities where you think your research might lead to, to some retrofitting? I mean, what ultimately do you envision? Uh, where do you envision your work uh, having the biggest impact? 
So the, all the community uh, you just listed up is from our the first phase of the research, which is we look at how many 65 older people living in that community and then what are their accessibility uh, score. And then we uh, overlay those statistics and then we found out there are A, a lot of aging people, uh, uh, the density of aging population is quite high, but uh, accessibility is quite bad. Um, but all this analysis, this finding is based on the civic census data. It was very uh, objective uh, information. We just analyzed and then plugged the number and that's what we found out. But we don't know anything about how actually all the people senior living in their community feels or perceive their experience in terms of the accessibility, aging in community and aging in uh, uh, place. So actually, I wish you could ask this question uh, maybe after this summer. Mm -hmm. uh, about two weeks ago, we just got an ethic approval. So we are in the process of recruiting the seniors. So we are propo we propose um, to the data collection from the senior living in this selected community. And then we're gonna ask them uh, to uh, take a picture of their own community in terms of what do you think about your accessibility you're in community and then what do you think about in terms of aging in place and aging in community and then just feel free to take any picture you perceive and then capture the concept of uh, accessibility and then aging in place and aging community so our plan is we're going to analyze the data and then we'll have an interview with that people and then that will be the, the actual data. And then spoke, speaking from the senior's perspective, senior's experience. And then we hopefully to fill the gap, just uh, civic census data telling in terms of aging population accessibility, we want to combine. So what, what actually seniors are experiencing in terms of the accessibility. Which is so huge, obviously. And we'll look forward to seeing that, that second stage of your research. Um, Brent, I want to open up the biggest can I can and just put it right in front of you. And and, and when you talk about, well, I, for you, I love your body language because you're like, what are you even talking about? I know you talk about this stuff all the time. When you talk about transit, when you talk about investing in that infrastructure, when you talk about political decisions, I mean, I don't know if it's ironic, but it's but it's certainly relevant that the city that Dr. Lee is studying in Calgary is is also home to a majorly contentious debate around the green line, the LRT expansion, transit expansion. Uh, some people have been fighting for that and advocating for that for years. A lot of people, I bet, have bought property and chosen neighborhoods based on that proposed green line. And then and then you've got kind of this. This army, this like conglomerate army that that fights against the green line. And of course, with municipal elections coming up, everybody's talking about it all over again. You know, I'm sure that you have advised councils and you've certainly taken part in decision making processes. I mean, what is what is bold, intuitive, informed, forward looking leadership look like in the context of implementing transit infrastructure? Or can I just say to, to tail end against the doctor's comments, you asked her about uh, retrofitting. Uh, I was actually the chief sub subdivision neighborhood planner when uh, we negotiated Seton, one of the mm. projects that uh, the doctor is studying. That was very an obviously uh, specifically designed neighborhood to be more mixed use than any uh, suburban Calgary. You can't, you can't even call it suburban. Uh, 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 edge community in Calgary has ever been. So it makes the point that I always stressed at the time, it's very hard to retrofit 
um, both suburban communities or inner city communities, not physically hard, politically hard. And so you actually have to try to do the best you can to get it right in the first place because you can't count on retrofitting later. So Seton is a good example. There, For every Seton in Calgary, there are a lot of neighborhoods that are the opposite of Seton. They are entirely not only just housing, but single detached housing, uh, one housing type with very little to walk to and far distances to get everywhere. So um, a lot depends on doing our suburbs better. And 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 frankly, uh, uh, retrof- the retrofit conversation is mostly in the context of inner city or infill uh, within the established neighborhoods. Now, populate. Uh, politics and, 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 and transit and such. Calgary is a hotbed for a weird kind of political campaign lately. It's not just, it's not just community, not in my backyard campaigns fighting against change. It's big money campaigns fighting the green line. It's big, big anonymous money campaigns that even misquoted me in a recent uh, uh, advertorial in the front of the uh, Avenue magazine that was railing against the the um, great neighborhoods, great communities uh, piece of work that Stafford brought to council to try to bring more housing diversity to neighborhoods. So there's not only small grassroots, not in my backyard voices, there's big money, uh, big anonymous money also trying to influence that campaign going right into an election. Uh, it's always been necessary for political leaders to do the right thing, be willing to do the right thing based on information, data, a a, a direct connection to your actual definition of success. In other words, what I always say to council is, if you want this, more housing diversity, the ability to age in place, then you have to do this. You you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say no to all the housing types in your neighborhood to make the not in my backyards happy and then wish that our neighborhoods uh, would facilitate better aging in place. It is a direct result of the political decisions that are being made. So our politicians need to be data-driven. That's why the data from this doctor helps. Uh, this uh, It has to be bold and brave. I don't even like to call it bold and brave because it's almost giving it too much credit. It's just doing the right thing. Yeah. Even when the right thing is hard, that's literally the definition of leadership. I always say you don't get points for doing the right thing when it's easy. You get points for doing the right thing when it's hard and then showing that it works better. That's what I expect of my political leaders, the the mayors and, and members of council that I advise. Often I'm helping them not just know what the right thing to do is, because that's almost the easy part. I'm helping them with the language, the the political positioning, the narrative, and the data to support their decision to do the right thing, because that's often the hard part. Brent Totterin, uh, a longtime uh, city planning consultant and urbanist uh, working for cities across Canada um, and, and uh, doctor, uh, a social work researcher, Dr. Yunjung Lee, uh, both really grateful for your perspectives uh, today. And we want to thank you so much for, for making the time to talk to us about this. Oh, by the way, Brent, before we go, uh, we're, we're, we're a show that really likes to recognize sacrifices that people make to make themselves available. And, and we want to give a shout out to your wife who, who reportedly at seven forty Pacific time and probably way earlier than that was up to take over childcare duties. You would normally have to make you available for this interview. So a big shout out to her as well. Please pass that along. 
<laughs> you got it. There's a lot of people. Nobody, you know, in our household, it's nobody's job. We're a team. There you go. That's awesome. That's a great perspective to have. Uh, we reached out to Brett yesterday, and he goes, uh, uh, he he says, yeah. Well, he goes, okay. He goes, seven forty. I'm usually. He goes, that's usually the time where I'm. T-. He goes, okay. Well, she says she can do it. We said, nice one. Thanks. You know, these podcasts can record whenever they want to record. You know, eleven a.m., three p.m. We'll see. No way. We're here live with you every morning, and and we love that hundreds of you are live with us every morning. Uh, either streaming us live on our YouTube channel. Um, thank you for subscribing. Thank you for hitting the like button or via the Mixler audio app, which you can also access at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, if you want to stream audio in your car, you want to be out on your run, you're on the whatever, you're on your Peloton while you're listening to Real Talk, you can find it on the Mixler audio app. Sarah Hoyles has uh, news headlines coming up in just a few minutes. I want to get to a couple of uh, the comments that we've seen here. Uh, A bunch of you digging in, by the way, unrelated uh, to what we're talking about here, although maybe someone could find a common thread or an angle. But but user fees uh, out of the gates today, we talked about a ninety dollar annual fee to use the Kananaskis Provincial Park. Uh, That was the one established by former Premier Peter Lougheed. And a whole bunch of you have dug in on this. And, and I don't think that we have consensus among real talkers, which I which is great because uh, I don't think we have consensus in our studio right now. Um, I don't know 100 percent. I don't know that I feel totally strongly one way or another. I can I can hear a point. I can hear a counterpoint. And I go, yeah, OK, um, where I land on this is I am not inherently automatically opposed to user fees. I think that there there is nuance to these conversations. I think we need to recognize budgetary realities. I think we need to look at who's paying the user fees and maybe who's exempted. Maybe we need to talk about, you know, what are what are nice to haves and what are have to haves. Right. If you if you want to talk about subsidized transit or free transit, is that a different conversation than than rec centers? Is that a different conversation than provincial parks? Uh, is that a different conversation than than kids sports programs? I mean, we could get into a million of these. Um, you know, Michael says, I, you know, I agree. I don't use the park, uh, but yet the previous government was paying for the upkeep of the park, right? Crazy Fast Eddie says, I'm not totally against user fees for parks, but when there's a $30 million a year war room for oil and gas that could cover maintenance costs, no freaking way, says Crazy Fast Eddie. I think that one resonated with Sam Brooks. <laughs> I just think it's amusing that in Alberta, we measure things in war rooms. Well, and this is why it's so <laughs> politically inconvenient for Jason yeah. Kenney. Because exactly. every, every time there's a cut, people will do it by how many war rooms. Well, even, I mean, the, the parks debacle last year, and they're talking about closing some parks to save $5 million. So we get we get one sixth of a war room for all of the parks that we're going to close. That makes no sense. Well, how, right? about, how about the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta that, that folded its doors? Well, Less than one thirtieth uh, of a war room. Well, no, it's one one hundred and twentieth. That is true of yeah. a war room. They're looking for two hundred and fifty grand. So if you start, you know, measuring things, <laughs> if your watermark is the war room, and that's how you're measuring how things cost, it becomes politically inconvenient for the party that brought in that war room and has refused to defund it. Um, you know, Dwayne says that this government, this provincial government, wants to make us pay for their failed corporate tax cuts. Gordon, meantime, says there should be no fees to use provincial lands. Um, for Albertans, uh, it's a non-starter for him, right? Jillian says, "Oh, she's oh these selfish attitudes." You know, I'm not using X, you know, so I shouldn't pay for it. She says, "Yeah, not yet, but you'll be glad it's there when you need it." Joe says, "Let's keep in mind people, you know, the Venn diagram here. People that also screamed about the proposed Bighorn recreational area. This is right around where they're doing the coal mining exploration right now." Says, "Use the phrase 
Albertans are going to be forced to pay more to use their own backyard. Joe pointing out that now it's true, but it's the folks that were concerned about that that are making it happen. Cheryl says the problem's the mess that was left last year by irresponsible users. There's a cost to clean up after them. Uh, it's worth noting out that there's a public land use area, McLean Creek, um, that is not included in the $90 fees. Uh, you'll be able to use that area for free. If you know me, if you've listened to my broadcasts in past, if you pay attention to my Instagram, you'll know that I've grown up out there. Uh, I've been out to McLean Creek probably you know, literally 24 of the last 25 May long weekends. I'm not part of the problem out there. We're responsible when we're out there, but it is undeniable that some of the activity out there is disastrous. Um, so I don't crack on off-roaders and, and off-roading enthusiasts. I am one of them. And I understand that that can be a divisive issue. But just as with hunting, just as with uh, those that are involved in, in trail riding, that, that enjoy the equestrian side of life, uh, just like those that angle, you know, I mean, anybody that loves to fish, just like any of this stuff, there's, you know, there are people that are that are great stewards of the lands and there are people that are, quite frankly, real pricks. And I know that it's going to jump out to a lot of people that McLean Creek is exempted from this $90 fee. You know, maybe it's the government doing some favors to people that have done them a favor. Uh, maybe it's the government being able to extend an olive branch and, and say this is one area where you're not going to have to pay because there's a lot of families that do bring their trailers out there. There's a lot of families that do camp out there. Sarah Hoyles is rolling her eyes through the plexiglass. <laughs> you don't buy that one? Well, I just feel like, OK, so that one's been highlighted as the one that's not going to have fees on it. So then everyone and their dog will be going to McLean Creek. So then, oh, and now, so the argument of that there's been environmental degradation, that doesn't, that doesn't stick because that's going to happen in this place. And then what, are we going to slap on a fee there too? You almost wonder if it's like a, like a sort of uh, try to contain the problem and then really ramp up enforcement. Like anybody that's been out at McLean mm. Creek, I remember in the early 1990s when we were out there, it was the Wild West. I mean, it was an absolute free-for-all. Um, and in many cases, in a really bad way. People, yeah. would, people would drive stolen vehicles out there. They'd roll them. They'd crash them. People got killed out there. You know, they'd start cars on fire. Uh, they'd leave huge, disastrous messes behind. The, these riparian zones, you know, that are, that are uh, from an ecological standpoint, so important around rivers and streams would be demolished and torn apart by mud train tires and, and by side-by-sides and dirt bikes and quads. And, and again, I own a Jeep. We're a Jeep family. I love off-roading. I love camping. I love getting out there. I'm not cracking on, on the, the sport or the, the hobby, let me call it. But, but certainly, I think we can all agree that people are, that, are, that are taking an opportunity to demolish the environment are part of the problem. Um, that undeniably is the fact. Over the years, we've seen, I mean, police out there handing out DUIs, police on dirt bikes, on quads. The enforcement is ramped up big time. There's check stops all the time to get into the area. There's check stops to get out. Um, and they send a very clear message. I mean, you know, a lot of people I've heard people say, I don't go out to McLean anymore. It's crawling with cops now. And it's kind of like, OK, so it's working. The only who are the people that aren't going out there anymore because there's cops, right? No, they're, they're, you know, breathalyzing people on the trails like do a DUI. Yeah, you're running like major trails. Like if you've you know, if, if I know I'm talking niche here, but like if, <laughs> if you're if you're a Jeep guy or if you're not, you know, if you've run the steps or if you've been out at Fisher East at McLean Creek, you know, what I'm like you should probably be sober to run those trails. So. I'm here all day for this conversation. Um, I can I, tell I am, you are. Well, I mean, this is my passion. Yeah. Like this is this is an area that's dear to me. But this is how Albertans feel about their parks. 
right? I feel a connection to a park for a certain reason. You might feel or Sam might feel a completely different or have a different reason for their connection to the park. You know what else people feel strongly about is curriculum. And we've got to get to an interview on curriculum in just a little bit. See, we go off on these tangents and then we have people in our way. You waiting. have quality segues. There. We have we have people in the in the bullpen. Carla Peck's yeah. like, when is he impressed. when is yeah. he planning on getting to me? When are we gonna talk? Let me quickly She's enjoying remind it. you. Don't worry. <laughs> Before we do, yeah, Sam gets to see them all in the green room. <laughs> so we so we speak. We should we could get like a green room cam where we could bring people in so we oh, can be fun, so we yeah. can really be like Kimmel and Fallon and, and, and like this? everybody else. Yeah, there you go. There's our green room. <laughs> yeah, she didn't know she was gonna be on camera. Good thing Carla Peck wasn't picking her nose or something. She didn't even know she was gonna be on camera you know we keep an eye on our hashtag every morning and uh jeff Nachtigal, it's awesome to see him uh watching us live today at real talk rj uh he says i mostly agree with brent totter and all the time uh but you can have your cake and eat it too uh, in the context of urban design, he says, let me know if you need help with this. Jeff and his wife, Amy, this is for free, pal, uh, own Sugared and Spiced, which is a phenomenal bakery in the city of Edmonton. Real Talk RJ, the hashtag is powered by Park Power, where right now, if you switch over your internet, natural gas, electricity in Alberta, it's you can do it with the click of a button. Uh, parkpower.ca, use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. <clears throat> And they're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill. That's right. No strings attached. 2021-RealTalk. 70 bucks off your first bill. I was checking out their Instagram again today. They've got some great tips for, for cutting down on your power usage. And they've also got a reminder on there that you can go with a variable or fixed rate. When it comes to their utilities, you can learn more again by following them on social media. Also, a huge shout out to the team at Friesen Brothers. Their 15th Alberta location now wide open for you to check out in South Edmonton, the Rabbit Hill location. It's redefining the grocery game in Alberta and beyond. You have to check out, just in time for grilling season, their selection of Alberta veg. What about grilled sourdough bread? Are you kidding me? Rub it with a little bit of olive oil, maybe a little bit of butter and some garlic. Baby, And then, of course, Alberta pork, beef, chicken, turkey, and everything else you've come to expect for more than 65 years from Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Well, we wanted to check back in with Carla Peck. It's been a while since she was with us on the show. Carla is a renowned uh, curriculum expert. She's a professor of social studies education in the Department of Elementary Education at the University of Alberta. She teaches and researches in areas of, of citizenship, history, is currently the director of a pan-Canadian research partnership called Thinking Historically for Canada's Future. Welcome back to the show, my friend. A good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here and really good segues so far this morning. <laughs> hey, well, you know what? It's easy to segue when you build your show on the foundation of talking about things that people care about. You, you, can, you, can, always, 100%. you, you can always find common threads. Uh, you and I first spoke, I guess, what was it, maybe a month ago or something like that, uh, w- when this uh, draft curriculum was released, K-6, to and the entire province, it seemed, just absolutely erupted. And, and I can say, I've been the king of anecdotal evidence today, but our inbox here, talk at ryanjesperson.com, has not slowed down with people writing about the curriculum. I assume it's the same case with you. It is. It's been amazing uh, to see people, you know, complete strangers copying me on their um, letters that they're writing to their MLAs or to the Minister of Education or the Premier or, you know, all of the above. um, And just, you know, wanting to share with me their uh, their concerns and and how they're expressing them to to those in positions of power who hopefully are listening. I 
I don't know that we've seen a lot of signs that that these concerns are actually being heard. But uh, like you, the the stream of of communication hasn't slowed down into my inbox either. If anybody feels that if they're hearing you or seeing you for the first time on the show and they feel like you and I are going to be skipping a few steps in the conversation, I want to remind them that they can find your past interview with us where we really get into what's problematic, why it's problematic. Um, some of this we know is, is appeared to be uh, rewritten on the fly, uh, which you know some people are saying that's not how you put out a draft and that's not how you solicit feedback. Other people were saying, well, at least maybe it's a good indicator that they're willing to change. Have you seen any positive developments over the past few weeks? No. Uh, this, the fact that they were uh, revising aspects of the social studies curriculum on the fly, sort of under the cover of night, tells me that they actually realized they screwed up uh, in some major ways. Um, and we're trying to, you know, pull the wool over people's eyes and say, oh, well, maybe they won't notice. Maybe they didn't get get to this part of the curriculum yet. So we'll change it. And, and hopefully no one will know. Well, of course, people picked up on it right away. And when you put a draft out for, um, for consultation and feedback, well, number one, you don't put a draft out that is full of errors and, um, you know, it's just so poorly written. It's It would be like a student passing in their paper before proofreading it, before asking a, a good friend, you know, could you read this over, make sure, did I, you know, have I screwed anything up? Have I uh, missed something important? Have I spelled things wrong? Have I gotten my facts wrong? And then handed it in without doing that. And then being surprised that they didn't maybe get the grade they were hoping. It's the same kind of deal. You don't put a curriculum out to the public that's that's just so so poorly developed um, and full of errors. I mean, that's just a basic, like at least get your facts right. Yeah, I mean, optically, it was problematic, which is, uh, th that's me being diplomatic, as a matter of fact, Dr. Peck. Not everybody gets to see me like that all the time. Th there's been a, there, there's a citizen, I've never seen citizen action in Alberta like I have in the last year. I mean, this is absolutely remarkable on a number of fronts, coal and curriculum maybe leading the charge, and then there's been a whole bunch of others. But but let's take a look at this tweet that was posted just this morning. Um, this is a private citizen that's been tracking the school boards that have said that they're not going to pilot this draft curriculum. Here's what's especially significant uh, from Stephen Meridu, is that Red Deer Catholic Regional School trustees have voted unanimously to not participate in piloting the K-6 draft curriculum. Why is it so significant? Because Alberta's education minister, Adriana LaGrange, was previously the chair of this board. That one resonates pretty strongly, wouldn't you say? I, I would say I put out a tweet myself last night saying, you know, this one's got a sting for Minister LaGrange because she was part of that board, as you said, a trustee, vice chair and then chair for 11 years. And uh, it's actually constituency week. So she's probably home and, and got the news, um, you know, pretty close at hand with a phone call or something like that. So, yeah, I would think that that would sting. There's now something close to 40 or 42 boards out of 61 that have said they're not going to pilot the curriculum. And uh, I mean, that to me is absolutely a resounding condemnation about the quality or lack thereof of this curriculum. And the minister keeps saying, you know, well, those schools that are boards that pilot it, they'll be able to give us the quote, rich, rich feedback. Um, I would say she's getting pretty rich, rich feedback right now by the number of boards that are saying, we're not going to take this and put this in front of our students and families. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to admire the swagger 
Um, I just, I, I just, I, I just don't know who they think they're fooling anymore. Quite frankly, uh, you were pushing this uh, website out yesterday. I know it's a new one, and we're just going to leave it up on the screen for the benefit of those that are that are watching on YouTube. We'll do our best to describe it for those that are uh, listening by way of our podcast. Alberta Dash Curriculum Dash Analysis. Alberta-curriculum-analysis.ca. Take us into this. Why is this such a big deal? So not long after I started to share my own analysis of the social studies curriculum, just after the, the draft was released to the public at the end of March, I very quickly was contacted by, again, by many were complete strangers reaching out to me saying, okay, we're hearing this about social studies, but what about the other areas of the curriculum? Do you know anybody who's doing any analysis of that from, you know, somebody who is a professor who does research in this area, uh, you know, trying to find out if there's other information out there in the other subject areas. And sure enough, there was, there started to be sort of a little trickle of, um, of commentary that was coming out from professors from around the province and other experts from around the province. But it was located in all kinds of different areas. It might have been on a Facebook post or somebody might have written a Twitter thread or they might have published it on their personal blog, but it wasn't easy to find it, uh, everything in one spot. So um, a few weeks ago, I thought, why don't we create a website where all of this analysis could be located in one place, sort of a one-stop shop for people who are looking for uh, acad- people with academic expertise, who research this stuff for a living, who work closely with teachers and schools, um, and you know can provide this analysis in one spot so that people who are wanting to and analyze the curriculum themselves or, or who are looking to write to their MLA or their school board trustees or anyone that they want to write to could actually draw on some of the commentary on the site and be able to reference, you know, who, who was the person who actually wrote the commentary, what their credentials were and that sort of thing. So that, that really was the, the impetus behind this site. Uh, it's nonpartisan, it's open to diverse viewpoints, um, and but it is meant to be a place for people with sort of academic scholarly expertise. There's lots of other places for people to comment on the curriculum, people who are coming at it from different points of view, like that massive Facebook group that's what near 40,000 members or something like yeah. that. But this is, yeah, this is a site for meant for academic and scholarly commentary. Yeah, it's great. Alberta- and yet accessible, sorry, and written in nope. an accessible way. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just, I'm sort of clicking through it as we're talking here again, Alberta-curriculum-analysis.ca. So we'll say here, uh, you know, we'll go look through K to six because that's all that's been released right now. And I know that there's a note that seven to nine, 10 to 12 will be posted uh, when that's complete. Let's say just, you know, we'll click on mathematics. It takes us to, you know, what about discovery math? Uh, and here we have Deirdre Bailey, uh, Masters of Ed. Is that right? And and David Scott, Dr. David Scott, Ph.D. And then it kind of goes into a post on discovery math uh, that I'll tell you. Um, Dr. Peck, of all, of all my years of public commentary, there are a few things you can say that will just kick, like if, if a talk radio guest ever canceled on you last minute and you had 30 minutes of potentially dead air in front of you, you need not panic. You only turn on your microphone and you say something like fluoride in the water or carbon tax or discovery math and our switchboard would light up. And I'd be able to take calls for an hour and a half. I mean, that's a classic example of where this website, I think, could be a great resource. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the hope is that um, 
that people will be able to encounter um, this kind of commentary um, that perhaps debunks some of the myths that are out there, but also just provides um, uh, uh, an academic or scholarly viewpoint on, you know, what are the concerns, what are the strengths, the limitations, and that sort of thing uh, in, the, in the draft curriculum. And we've had, um, I mean, the site just launched yesterday. We've already updated with some additional posts. There's a, um, there are more posts coming, you know, by people who are interested in, in providing commentary. So I really encourage people to check back often because there will be new material added, um, I hope, on a regular basis. And as you mentioned, the um, upper grades, you know, we're not uh, in the process of revising those curricula yet, but the... Um, Grades seven and up are sort of next on the they're you know next on the list to be updated. So we expect to be able to provide commentary in those areas too. We had a uh, I'll ask you this in closing, uh, Dr. Peck. We had a, a really interesting conversation, kind of a, a reality check and difficult subject matter with an emergency doc out of Calgary, Dr. Joe Vipond on Monday. Mm-hmm. And uh, the doctor at the very end of it, he didn't want to get into it, and it's not my place to push him there. Um, but I thought it was telling that that at the end of it, he he, he talked about some potential professional ramifications of speaking out and he said i'm just going to leave it at this but he talked about kind of how some people are could be threatened or silenced Uh, those are my words not his and then he followed up after the interview with a note on our live chat and he tweeted at me saying just to reiterate um you know these are my views not the views of alberta health services not the views of the university of calgary faculty of medicine not the view you know i mean he was just really being specific and and kind of spelling it out and it was telling to me um have you faced similar pressures uh, to go so far as threats or, or on your career or in your well-being or otherwise for for so prominently speaking out in, in these contexts is that part of your experience um, I would say overwhelmingly I have had more words of support and encouragement and tweets you know stay strong keep doing what you're doing and uh you know thanking me for what i'm doing to speak out for public education for quality curriculum for children and families in alberta and it's been you know when i get those messages it it's really been heartwarming because you know i just um this is just something I'm really passionate about. And I think the, the stakes are too high. So to stay silent is not an option for me. Uh, that is not to say that, you know, all of the messages have been like that. Um, what's been most interesting is maybe my diplomatic word for the day is when um certain issues managers decide that they want to try to target me in tweets and things like that. And um, I mean, all I can do is laugh it off because they frankly don't know what they're talking about. So, you know, tweet away. Yeah. This just in some of these issues managers have no idea what they're doing. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Carla Peck, thanks for your insight. And and hey, like, thanks for fighting like hell for Alberta's kids. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to talk with you, Ryan. You got it. That's Dr. Carla Peck.
uh, sure appreciate her perspective on this. Um, if you want to check out her previous interview on the show, March 30th is the show that you're looking for. You can find that on YouTube, uh, on demand, obviously, if you subscribe to our podcast. And thank you for everybody that does subscribe to our podcast, making us Canada's most listened to daily news podcast. That still blows our mind every week, and we love it. Um, Dr. Peck is a professor of social, social studies education in the Department of Elementary Education at the University of Alberta. And again, that website, if you want to check it out uh, for yourself, I think that's just a really great resource. Alberta-curriculum-analysis.ca. If you're thinking of family outings, all this talk about parks is prompting you to find ways to get outside this summer, explore the great outdoors, maybe take the kids on their first tent camping adventure. Why not consider the Jeep Cherokee Sport 4x4? This is the one that, that everybody's talking about at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge because they've they've knocked a whole bunch of cash off. $34,990 right now uh, on approved uh, financing. This is the one with the leather-wrapped steering wheel, the, the one-touch, the Bluetooth touch screen, all the options you'd expect on something twice the price. Of course, four-wheel drive, nine-speed automatic transition uh, transmission. This is the one with the V6 in it as well, uh, so it can get up and go when you need it to. But of course, also fuel efficiency, a big part of what the Jeep Cherokee 4x4 brings to the table. You won't find a better selection than you will at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. A shout-out to the team at Clean Air Club this morning at cleanairclub.ca. They want you to save money and breathe easy. And that one thing you can control right now, like today in your house, is changing your furnace filter and then keeping those changes on schedule. They know we fall behind. Let's be honest. We've got a lot on our to-do list. You go onto their website. You tell them the size of the furnace filter you need. They drop them off at your door and you pay less than you would in store. There's no catch. You'll find it all at cleanairclub.ca. In just a a few moments, we're going to be checking in um, with uh, Jeremy Allen. Jeremy Allen is a grief educator, and uh, he's going to be talking to us about uh, about grief education and uh, and death ed. And I've just got a note here. uh, This happens live. This is part of a live show. And um, and I'm actually texting as we speak. I'm going to hand my phone over to Sarah Hoyle so she can take over the conversation. But Chief Chief Allen Adam uh, from Athabasca Chippewan First Nation is letting me know uh, he's on a call currently with with the other chiefs of the Athabasca. Athabasca Tribal Council. Uh, he says the meeting's going long. We had a meeting with the province this morning. Um, so maybe you can take my phone and maybe you can text him back and let him know we could talk maybe at 10 o'clock or something like that, or maybe in a half hour's time. Um, this is how things happen sometimes. And, and so what's great, uh, we've got an interview set up with uh, Chief Adam, who's going to be joining us, we hope, this morning. That's been the plan, but obviously the top priority for him, a call with the province. He's on with, uh, there are 11 First Nations and Métis Nations that have come together as part of a scathing uh, indictment of the province's approach to COVID-19 on this. I read a little bit from that news release sent out yesterday. Uh, So something's telling me, and I don't want to count chickens before they hatch, but potentially we'll get an update before anybody else will from Chief Allen Adam on how that call went. Um, Sarah's going to figure that out right now and, and, and we'll have them on the show scheduled for right now, but but maybe a little bit later on this morning. Uh, yesterday, this went out yesterday afternoon from the Athabasca Tribal Council, the 11 First Nation Métis Nations of the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo. Uh, if you're from outside the province of Alberta, that's that's north of Edmonton. It's, you know, colloquially known as 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 Fort McMurray and surrounding area. It's it's a massive and beautiful uh, part of Alberta, the boreal forest and, um, and and well known to Canadians, of course, for the their resilience and bouncing back from that that wildfire a number of years ago. Well, COVID-19 has has established a bit of a stronghold. Unfortunately, the numbers are, are quite frankly out of control. They're the highest in Canada. 
Um, and the numbers are actually worse than they look because they're not including the oil sands camps where there are hundreds of cases. Uh, those cases are being attributed to the communities where these workers uh, live when they're not at work, when they're not in the camps. So you may have cases showing up in other parts of Alberta, Saskatchewan, B.C., or, or for that matter, the Maritimes, where the case is actually residing. Uh, and by that, I mean the person with COVID-19 is residing in the province of Alberta, working in the province of Alberta at the time. They've, they're calling for a new approach, the Tribal Council, in the wake of record-setting outbreaks in the region. It recently, they say, claimed the life of a respected Métis elder who was denied treatment at Northern Lights Regional Health Center twice in the week before he died. Uh, President Kendrick Cardinal said in the release of Fort Chippewan Métis, these losses are too great to bear. Something has to be done. We cannot stand by and continue to watch these numbers surge. We must challenge the provincial government to address our concerns now. We refuse to bury another indigenous member of our communities. I mean, these are powerful words. They say we're at a crossroads at our society. For background, I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows what's going on here. Alberta's premier earlier this week, essentially, I mean, if you'd like me to choose a different word, I don't know what it would be. He pinned or he alluded to the fact that the reason that the cases are so high there is because of indigenous vaccine hesitancy. And these First Nations, the Métis Nations have pushed back, and, and as has Mayor Don Scott yesterday on the show. He said that that's just not accurate. He said they have historical memory about the Spanish flu, right? 1918 influenza. He said these communities have been the ones you can check out our interview. I encourage you to. Mayor Scott, that guy advocates for his region uh, in an admirable way, considering what's at stake here. Um, and uh, he doesn't mince words and he speaks the facts. And he looks straight into the camera and he, when he comes on this show and he just lays it out. He says these indigenous communities have been the one driving our efforts on this front yesterday. Right. The, the, it goes on to say that this news release yesterday, you know, we've had a year to prepare for this. Chief Alan Adams said right from the start, indigenous communities have been warning of precisely this scenario. Says Chief Adam, the province's plan has failed pure and simple. This is the this is the the indigenous leader, Chief Alan Adam. He's he's the one for background. That's 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 I mean, he understands messaging. He understands advocating for his community. He's the guy that's brought in James Cameron and he's the guy that's brought in Leo DiCaprio and Jane Fonda. He's the high profile uh, community leader that was quite frankly, beaten by RCMP officers outside a casino last year. Remember that it, it, it raised the ire of a lot of people that said this guy has been targeted for years for standing up for his community. And he's doing it again right now. Do I understand he's ready to go or, or he can jump in the call right now? It sounds or? like Sarah, you're, you're in contact with him, right? We don't have him on the line yet, but it sounds like he's almost ready. Yep. He says, I can call now. Okay, so, let's okay. get him on the Zoom and let's make that happen. Uh, in the meantime, Sam, I'm just going to mention a couple of our sponsors so we can uh, coordinate this and pull this together and we'll make it happen live. So we expect that Chief Allen Adam will join us in a couple of minutes. And then and then we're not going to leave Jeremy Allen hanging. We're still going to talk about grief education and, and death education. And I actually think... In, in an interesting way, I'm expecting that to be quite an inspiring conversation. It might be a difficult one for some of us that are personalizing it, that are thinking about our own lives and, and our own grief that we have or are experiencing. Um, but I think that's going to be a great conversation. Let, let's take the time right now to remind you that the team at Kubi Energy every morning, uh, they're reaching out to their customers. They're working with clients and partners in Western Canada based out of Edmonton, an office in Kamloops, which means that their solar installs, they can send their teams 
wherever the work is. And that's commercial, residential, industrial, and of course, you know, Kubi Energy as well. Of course, Tesla certified solar installers. They have electrical apprentices and journeyman electricians doing all their installs so you can have the confidence that it's being done right. Plus, they handle your paperwork. That's the one that always jumps out at me. You don't have to apply for the subsidies. They're going to make sure you get the cash that you're entitled to. Also, a big shout out to the team at Grand Dog Essentials, quality raw food. If you go to granddog.ca right now, you can learn more about how they approach nutrition when it comes to your four-legged family members. Our dogs have eaten Grand Dog quality raw food for years now, and we've seen huge returns on that investment when it comes to their health. Uh, Moses and Monroe benefit from supplements. Some other dogs may require, uh, you know, they've got the tripe, they've got the chicken, they've got the bison, the beef. You can talk to their team, granddog.ca. If you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll give you 10% off your first-time order, and they deliver to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. We've got the live chat going right now by way of our uh, YouTube page, and we appreciate everybody that tunes in live to be a part of this uh, every single morning. We've got a lot of people still leaving comments on user fees in parks, and we can broaden this conversation to include user fees for a whole bunch of things like rec centers, community centers, transit. I mean, there are some that advocate for free transit in in cities it would it would mark an investment of hundreds of millions of dollars annually for most canadian cities but that's always an interesting conversation to have Uh, and then there are those that are talking specifically about the kananaskis provincial park region uh, in alberta michael says i just think user fees are going to make it cleaner out there and i think that it's going to facilitate better upkeep so michael's optimistic about this James wonders if maybe we should take the Heritage Fund logo off the K-Country sign. He says, since that's no longer how we'll be upkeeping our parks. And James includes the emoji with a tear in the corner of his eye. Um, I'm curious to know how you how you think about, you know, how you're feeling about this. I mean, White Dream is crunching the numbers and says, OK, so through this pandemic year, they had five million people in there. Ninety dollars for an annual pass. Are we talking about four hundred and fifty million dollars? Do they think that K-Country requests half a billion or requires half a billion dollars to maintain it in a year? I'm not so sure about that. And so some people are, of course, crunching the numbers. Now, it won't be five million people every year. There's no way. You know that once a user fee goes in, it's very rare that it would go away, right? You did have the federal conservatives dial back the GST by a couple of points, like they promised they would, from 7% back down to 5 But it's pretty rare you see a tax or a levy or a user fee disappear when it's been in place before. Chelsea says, I just want to throw it out there. You know, Alberta always had more money than other provinces, so we didn't previously have to pay fees uh, for things that are common to have to pay fees for in other provinces. And Chelsea's right about that. She says, I feel like it created a sense of entitlement in Alberta. And I feel like we need to come to terms with the fact that if we want services, we're going to have to pay for them because oil royalties no longer can. I think that's a great wake up call from Chelsea. And and I think that's whether or not you agree with her. Um, I'm inclined to agree with her. Uh, I think that she gives you something to think about whether you agree with her or not. Also, a lot of great comments on aging in place and city planning. And and we're so grateful for the feedback that you provide to us. Just a reminder, talk at RyanJesperson.com is how you can hit our inbox. If you've been sitting, uh, you know, thinking about our interview with with Dr. Lee and Brent Totterin earlier this morning about city planning and urban planning and aging in place and over specialized communities and what character means in communities. If you're going to sit and think on that, 
that today while you're walking the dog, you're putting your thoughts together, you want to put it into an email um, for us to consider reading on the show. We always love to hear from you. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. And I suppose and I suspect we're going to get a whole bunch of people sharing firsthand stories about their own parents or about themselves or about transitioning or about from our younger audience members. I mean, we, we, hear, we heard from a grade eight student the other week. We read that email. A grade 11 student wrote in the other day. We hear from people writing in in their 20s all the time and early 30s talking about barriers to things like home ownership. That comes up in emails we got about increased tuition costs where people said across the board, you know, it's going to cost me 16 or 18 grand uh, to try to get into university. I mean, you know, that's not even comparable to what tuition was like 30 or 40 years ago. Or for me to get into a starter home, it's going to be, I mean, depending on the community, depending on where in Canada you're listening from. If you're in Vancouver, it's a different story than Edmonton, which is a different story than Winnipeg, which is a different story than St. John's. But if a starter home is, is 285 or, or 300 grand, uh, then, you know, you, you might suggest that the barriers to entry are a little bit more significant uh, than people have seen in the past. So always love hearing from different members of our audience, uh, representing different communities, different perspectives. That's what makes Real Talk so great. How are we doing with Chief Alan Adam? Are we we're kind of hanging tight? Uh, yeah, we're just waiting to get connected. Okay, here. no worries. Um, do you think that's going to happen in the next couple of minutes? Well, I love doing stuff like this live. This is good. People, this is like pulling back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz. Should we? Should I jump in with Jeremy Allen, or do you think this is going to happen momentarily? Why don't we? Why don't we? If if, it, if it's taking a few minutes, why don't we bump Chief Allen? Why don't we ask Allen uh, if he can do ten o'clock? Why don't we ask him if he can do twenty-two minutes from now? Does that sound good? Beautiful. Okay, why don't we go ahead and do that? That way we don't leave uh, Jeremy hanging. I've been looking forward to this conversation. When we've been talking about things like like um, Seniors of Humanity, that wonderful web project, we've been talking about some of the grim realities of COVID-19 and, and families that have uh, grieved the loss or are grieving the loss of loved ones, um, but, but they haven't been able to do it in a way that we might describe as as normal. We haven't been able to hug one another. We haven't been able to be together. We haven't been able to say goodbye to loved ones in some circumstances. We haven't been able to to hold our loved ones hands as they've passed. Some of us have 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 participated in conversations with loved ones in palliative care by way of FaceTime or through plexiglass or through double paned windows outside. It's got us thinking about grief and it's got us thinking about the psychological impact of, of losing people and of, and of bravely making our way through essentially an unprecedented time, a pandemic. Jeremy Allen is, is in the business as a funeral director and embalmer and as a grief educator. And uh, it comes highly recommended by Real Talkers who have nominated him to make his Real Talk debut. And we're grateful that he's done it this morning. Welcome to the show. Yeah, well, I will absolutely begin with gratitude and uh, just expressing how thankful I am to have the opportunity to be here today. It's uh, it's an unusual line of work that you're in. Um, uh, people that <laughs> I mean, I would think, um, you know, virtually probably everybody that's going to watch or listen to this interview has been to a funeral or has lost someone. Um, and, I, and I'm always astounded at, at, at the grace and the compassion that funeral directors and, and staff show at, at these types of memorial celebrations of life. Um, but that's your job. And, and I would imagine we could talk for an hour and a half on, on how you manage the emotional roller coaster or how you show empathy and compassion while not having known these people personally. How, how did you get into this line of work? It is a long, uh, you know, reasonably exciting story attached to, uh, you know, 
to be completely transparent in the conversation, um, most of my success has been rooted in failure. And so after a, a few uh, missteps uh, as a young, like 17, 18 year old, ended up having the opportunity to work with the funeral home in Calgary and, uh, you know, transitioned into uh, something that I've been doing now for over the last 16 years, basically for the entirety of my whole adult life. And uh, it's an incredible environment to be a part of, you know, recognizing exactly what you said about those specific opportunities that I think the public would have the highest awareness of where they see us serving families in that capacity of when somebody dies and, and some of the behaviors and emotional um, ways in which we're able to walk alongside families, uh, extremely important roles. And I think, you know, moving into this grief and death education uh, kind of faucet of my career, what I'm learning is that these lessons that we've been offered from families trusting us to help them in those times of immediate loss become very tangible and really applicable into so many other areas, you know, especially when we start to really expand our knowledge of grief being our emotional and behavioral response to loss, not just specifically to death. So. Emma's watching us live and on, on our chat. Emma says it's incredibly hard to grieve the loss of a loved one right now. Funerals help with grieving and acceptance. And I really missed that when my grandpa died, says Emma. We're sorry for your loss. Uh, Jeremy, how dramatic has, has been the difference of, of your last year, uh, all things considered? Yeah, it's a huge impact. Um, I really believe the intensity of grief right now is going to have generational impact on families. Uh, what Emma referring to is, you know, in those immediate, again, parts of loss, uh, grief is the emotion uh, of all of the things that we are going to feel attached to the relationship of the person that we lost. Um, mourning is where we begin to participate and activate in our grief, you know, which is forms a lot of those traditional things that we're used to, the, the being together, the having the rituals and traditions attached to a service or having a family dinner, you know, and I, I just really believe, you know, that opportunity to be together creates such a strong foundation for people to learn how to move forward with their grief. And by that opportunity being removed or at a minimum being extremely different than it has been in the past, is going to have huge impact because, you know, if I applied this experience that Emma is going through, it's not just her that's impacted. You know, if there's, if there's children in that family, it would be her parents that would be impacted. So again, just such a generational uh, emotional impact because the only way we learn how to grieve uh, is through mourning is through doing it together and by somebody showing us how. So this, this idea of grief education, um, does that, does that process start? Let me ask you, let me back up and let me ask you this. When do people start to grieve? Like, do you, do you grieve when you're, when your parent or your child or your grandparent or your spouse or your colleague is diagnosed with something? Is that when grief begins? Yeah. So I think it's really important that, you know, I'm going to answer that in two parts. Uh, the first is again, my my approach or my lens of grief is really focusing in on that grief is our emotional and behavioral response to loss, not specifically to death. So making sure that we start reapplying the knowledge of grief into other environments, like a great example of this is I spent an incredible amount of time this year with educators 
helping them acknowledge all of the loss that has taken place in the environments of schools and for our teachers and for the students, because where loss lives, grief will follow. So I think really important that we expand our ideology of grief to go well outside of when somebody dies and really start to attach grief, the emotion, to the environments in which loss can live. Now, when we talk more specifically about when somebody dies or when somebody is dying, you know, there's two styles of grief that, you know, are commonly known, I guess, in our style of education. One is what's called anticipatory grief. So that is the style, type of grief that you'll start to experience when you get that diagnosis or when, you know, death becomes um, knowing that that is going to be the end result, right? And that's ultimately what I've learned about anticipatory grief is that's where we start to see people prepare for loss. And I think the hard parts about those environments is oftentimes people believe that just because we can prepare for loss um, doesn't mean we're ready for it, right? So when loss actually occurs, you know, then we move in and transition into what's called bereavement grief. And a lot of the times in those environments of anticipatory grief, this is one of the reasons, and I, this is probably going to sound an, an unusual point of view, but I love grief. I'm I'm in love with the emotion of grief Hmm. because I think once we embrace the discomfort of, of difficult conversation, it leads to extremely meaningful experiences. You know, I think of when my grandma passed away that had Alzheimer's and dementia and, you know, we lost her over the course of four or five years, right. You know, that physically and mentally she changed in front of us um, to the point that she was no longer the, the person that we knew. Uh, And when she died and that, you know, that physical loss that accompanies death, I just remember in that moment feeling this sense of relief that that part of her life was over and completely devastated that my grandma had died. And why I love grief is I think grief is one of the few places, maybe the only place that two completely contrasting emotions cannot just live in the same space, but in the same moment that I can feel those, those two things at the exact same time. I uh, I bet you a whole bunch of people that are going to, you know, take in this interview are going to do it with tears streaming down their face because they're thinking of somebody. I just had a physical phenomenon when you said I love grief. I felt a surge of energy go through my body and my eyes started to water a bit. And I'm thinking of certain people um, and yeah. I think and I think of them joyfully. Um, but I grieve, you know, I, I think of my, my young friend, Peter, he's forever young. He's our James Dean. We lost him in his early twenties. Um, every time I taste a Guinness, I still think of him and I could start crying right now, telling stories about him. It's not that I can't go through my day. Um, it's not that whatever, but the friendship was so wonderful and so special and so powerful that, that I will always grieve his loss, but it is kind of in a way I, I kind of get what you mean about I love grief. I mean, I, I mean, I, I wish I didn't feel that. I wish he was still here. Everybody wishes they could hold their grandma's hand forever and that dementia would never sink its nasty claws into the brains of the loved ones we know. Um, but at the same time, it's grief. Is, isn't it an interesting way of honoring the memory and the relationship of somebody and acknowledging maybe the emotion that they invoke in us? Yeah. And, and I think your, you know, your story about your friend, Peter, I think that's, that's the exact part of grief that I love so much that, you know, as you take that sip of Guinness, you know, in that moment when, you know, when he reappears in, in that environment, you know, that feeling of still being connected to this person 
that was so meaningful to you. And I never want that to go away. I never want to have, um, you know, to know what it feels like to not be able to connect with. I, I just feel like grief is this space that all of this emotion and all of this love. And, and I think grief becomes the connection and the relationship to the person that we love so much. And I think when we can start to serve ourselves at a higher level by recognizing, you know, we serve ourselves very well when we, when we give ourselves comfort and predictability. And what I mean in that is it's okay to think about Peter and for emotion to be present. We don't need to be afraid of that. We can remove the fear from grief without removing the emotion. And the thing that I've learned is if you can, if you can truly engage in that part of the, uh, of the experience, you know, where you allow emotion to be present, it normally, you know, in time will transition to joy, right? You know, mm-hmm. where the, the initial heartbreak again, like of, of still wishing that he was at the table having that beer with you, but grateful to still be able to feel his presence in that same way. Yeah. Right. It's and again, said. in the exact same moment, it's just such an incredible thing. I think you feel those two things at the exact same time. And I think that's what fascinates me about grief is that I, it's the only place I've ever had that experience. So people, you know, brace themselves for a grief journey. Um, I mean, different things are going to jump out at everybody. I don't know why I'm feeling compelled to say specifics to you, but I, I, you know, I even think of, um, you know, we recently observed the, you know, the anniversary of that horrific crash of the Humboldt Broncos uh, team bus, for example, and and I exchanged some private messages with some family members, and and I didn't know if I should. Uh, that that day is going to be circled on their calendar forever is like the worst day of their lives that you could possibly imagine. And and I would imagine that that for them, even these families, I certainly don't speak for them, but they're probably still at the very beginning stages of, of this great of this grief journey. So what do you tell people? I mean, maybe it's different. Maybe it's not. I don't mean to be insensitive, but if we lose our our 98 year old great uncle who lived a wonderful life and like lived with shrapnel in his hip from World War Two for 70 years and like, you know, <laughs> loved it being at the Legion and playing golf and all that stuff and had a great life and died with a smile on his face versus a 17 year old taken tragically. I mean, those grief journeys are going to be different, too, right? Completely. I think the big thing, Tim, you know, that's really important for us to start to learn more about is, you know, comparing grief never works out for anybody, Mm. right? That it is a completely individual experience. And so when we talk about, you know, the contrast of those two two styles or types of grief, you know, when I think of like the the 90-year-old uncle with the shrapnel in his hip, you know, typically what we can do uh, cognitively is we can attach fullness of life, you know, and, and we can really walk through and attach, you know, the gratitude of, of the experience and the relationship and all the wonderful things that were a part of this. What I like to do in those moments is still make sure at some point in time, we still slow down and say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that that was your experience and that you have these memories and that that was a part of your uncle or your dad's or your mom's story, but it's still your mom you know, that we still pause and acknowledge the relationship that was lost, you know, and and that's where I will start to notice the difference that we don't sometimes need to spend as much time in that space of acknowledgement or, or paused in, um, in the relationship because there's a, we have an easier time accepting um, the, the end result that there was a natural order attached to that life. You know, then we completely move over to the other space of, 
of all of these these young kids and and the coaching staff and the training staff and and people that lost extremely important people that were in my opinion like all at the beginning of their lives yeah it's a completely different setting and i think for us you know those of us that want to walk alongside others during times of loss or offer our support you know the words of encouragement i try to give to you know to people that are trying to be helpful is it's wonderful when you gain the confidence of how to re-enter conversation with these moms and dads, because I can, you know, the only thing I can promise you without knowing any of them, there is nobody more aware of their child's missing presence than them. So you saying their name or you bringing it up or you creating space for them to talk about their kids uh, is such a wonderful way to show them that we support you, that I'm willing to sit in the discomfort of this conversation because the person that we're talking about is too important uh, to be silenced. I love that you said that because I really struggle with it. Like I, I, when someone loses somebody, I and 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 it's like I'm talking. I'm not talking about in the moment, um, but whether it's somebody that's maybe miscarried, or somebody that's lost right. a child, or somebody that's lost a spouse, or whatever. Um, you know, you you don't know if like. I guess what I'm trying to say, Jeremy, is if they were having a great day and then you come along and remind them that maybe it's, I don't want right. to say it, but it's not a great day. Like, no, you, but like I, you drive, I know their, exactly, you know, I know exactly where you're going with this. And I think the thing that you, you know, we need to have a higher level of confidence in is knowing that they might be in, in the presence of a good moment, but you can guarantee that that is always on their mind. So you are not reminding them of it. What you're doing is you're, you know, and I think the big thing for us is, you know, to genuinely enter into those conversations without judgment or expectation. And what I mean by that is, you know, again, I'm going to apply this to an environment outside of, of you know, loss attached to when somebody dies. Like I think of friends of mine that are, are going through uh, stages of unemployment and, you know, to be able to just say to them, hey, look, I was thinking about you. I'm, you know, I'm sure you're having a hard time right now. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to force you to talk about this with me, but I just need you to know that this is a safe place and, and it is something I think about often, right? Yeah. You know, and, and then reapplying it into all of these environments. And I think, of course, when we when we talk about, you know, somebody that loses a pregnancy, somebody that loses a child or somebody that, you know, loses a loved one when they pass away, it becomes much more meaningful. I think we have the opportunity to practice it in all of these other spaces so that when we end up in some of the most intense types of loss, you know, we're a little bit more practiced and comfortable sitting in that discomfort. Like one of my favorite quotes of this year is, from Brene Brown that says discomfort over resentment. And when I reapply that into uh, my environment of grief and loss, I really believe if we can learn to sit in the discomfort of difficult conversation, it will remove the opportunity for long-term resentment attached to grief. Wow. Um, l- let me just, I'm, I'm just going to read some comments here on our live chat. They're, they're going to be random, but they're all tied into our conversation here together. Chad says, I've been to more funerals this past year than I have in my whole life. Um, says I'm really enjoying this conversation. April says Jeremy's very approachable. Certainly knows his stuff about grief. Mark, grief. Mark uh, watching in from Utah says I participated in a bunch of funeral live streams this year. Um, you know, Judy says death is a part of life. Grief education should start young. Um, to seek justice is wondering what kinds of rituals or ways can we grieve from afar? Brenna says it's so important to recognize grief is not only tied to death. We, we can grieve lost dreams, lost jobs, grieve our health. Um, 
you know, Jillian's quoting you says where loss lives, grief will follow. Wow. Penny says, I'm not great with public grief. I just want to be left alone. I mean, every I mean, these comments are amazing. They're all very personal. What have you told people? This this one jumps out at me to seek justice, wondering what kinds of rituals or ways can we grieve from afar? Have you been counseling people this year by way of deathed.com, your website and your and your social media platforms on saying goodbye to, to loved ones in palliative care, uh, you know, you know, through plexiglass or through windows. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the biggest thing that we've really tried to do is, is acknowledge people in their place of loss, you know, without trying to fix them. That part becomes really important. Um, it's a really powerful thing. Again, when we can start to see people in the environments of, of hardship and not go through the immediate response of trying to fix them. And, uh, and so that's likely where we've spent a lot of our time and, you know, talking about the rituals and traditions and what can we do, you know, when we can start again to reapply that into our relationships and, and people that we know that are, are walking through loss, you know, to be able to say, you know, and, and if all you can offer right now, I think what you have to be able to do is just say like, what is the best I can offer? And sadly, right now, for a lot of us, the best we can offer is making a phone call or FaceTiming or sending a text message. And I think we need to be okay with that, you know, and then going back and, and just being able to say, listen, I would love to be on your doorstep with a frozen lasagna that you don't want to eat because you've already got 25 of them. Yeah. Um, but we just both know that's not possible right now. But the thing that I do know is that at some point in time, that is going to be possible. And I'm going to show up for you then, you know, if, if that's okay. And asking for permission, we're not entitled to other people's grief, you know, thinking about that one comment about the person that wants to be left alone, you know, that they want to process. And I think, again, it becomes really powerful when we ask for permission to join people in their loss versus just assuming they want us to be there, you know, and, and again, gaining that confidence of just sending that message without judgment or expectation saying, Hey, I've been thinking about you, you know, in, in during your time of loss and, you know, without expectation, I just want to know that um, I would love to be there for you if there's anything I can do. And if you don't reply or if you don't call me back, uh, I, I am completely comfortable with that. I need you to know that there's just, there's no expectation attached to this offer. And doing that, I think, serves people at a very high level and, and they may take you up on the offer. They may not. But the thing I guarantee they will remember is that you honored their space and you were respectful that it was their grief. People are pouring their hearts out on our live chat right now. Um, Adventure Cycling says, when I lost my dad to cancer, I was 24. I was going to college in Victoria. My dad lived in Calgary. I was not educated in grief and I ran away back to school as I could not watch him die. Goes on to say education is so important. And I changed this practice when I lost my mom years ago, says I could not have put this into words even two years ago. Um, Kelvin is watching is Kelvin and Chris from a shared account says my mom was diagnosed with dementia about three years ago. I'm her primary caregiver. I grieve every single day for the mom that I've lost. We were so close and I've lost that person. Um, this is, I feel I'm like honored to be able to read these. I mean, people are this is amazing. I love this audience. Um, you know, I mean, this, this is amazing. I mean, Sharon writes in and says, my sister's work as a death doula. I've never heard that before. Uh, begins before people pass. So in terminal cases, um, people can start to 
you know, understand Sharon says the problem now is she can't meet with people face to face and both patient and family typically are involved. So you're so there's death doulas. You're a grief educator. I mean, you know, obviously there's there's been mental health counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists. And, and, and I mean, people talk to their family doctors and there's this continuum of care and we understand holistic health. And how much is this changing? How much is I, I, you don't want to call it an industry. That sounds tacky, but let, right. let's call it your calling. How much is this area changing around death and grief and understanding and preparing? I think what I'm learning, you know, from that professional aspect of, you know, specifically my roles as a funeral director and bomber, um, the thing that we are adapting most to right now is the deep recognition that I believe, you know, we've always been a profession, you know, educationally, uh, we reach a level of, of, an industry. So I think, you know, if you were to Google the funeral industry, that would, that would get the most hits on Google. Uh, but I think we really try to approach it as being a profession. And the thing is, is over the course of, of the in, entire history of the profession is they've just built up a really high level of standard in serving families. And, you know, a lot of that, again, we'll go back to those rituals and traditions, the black cars, the limousines, all of the things that I would say that we would attach as symbols, symbols attached to uh, when somebody passes away. And I think those still remain extremely important parts of, of what we do. What I'm learning now is to invest at a very high level into the emotionally intelligent parts of the conversation that I believe the funeral homes and the funeral directors that will continue to progress at a very high level are going to learn how to become emotionally invested into the outcome of the communities that they're serving without emotionally attaching themselves, you know, to the outcome of every single person's grief. And that's a really kind of convoluted, you know, idea, but I think it's, I think I really believe that's what's going to set us apart in, in the next movement of funeral service, you know, that even thinking about like the death doulas and these things, if we can help them live well, we should be able to help them die well. I'm already looking forward to our next conversation, man. Uh, and this is uh, real talkers get two points for this one because they're the ones that I mean, like several people reached out and said, you got to get this guy on your show. And I'm so glad that we did. Um, I, I'm going to do it live right now on the record. So you have to say yes. I, I'd like you to commit to coming yeah, back I mean, sometime. All right. Jeremy, Allen, you got it, buddy. Um, a grief educator. You can learn more about his grief and loss education platform at deathed.com. You'll find him on Twitter as well. Thanks for doing this, my man. Awesome. Thank you again. Much you appreciated. Uh, and, and to real talkers, like, thank you for what you've. Um, <laughs> who was it? Was it Blake or someone on here said, Jespo, if you start crying, we're all going to start crying. Well, I make no promises. Um, you know, uh, Joanne Uchuk says, Dr. Jody, uh, that's Dr. Jody Carrington, who, by the way, is coming back on the show soon. We'll make that announcement. Um, uh, Dr. Jody says death ends a life, not a relationship. And to always say their name, it brings people such peace that you remember them because you do it every day. There was a powerful comment here from TC uh, says, I think we often forget our own humanity when it comes to the tough stuff. We're all just humans and all we have is each other. So we meet each other with love. TC goes on to say, you know, grief hit, hits me at really weird times. Uh, you know, the other day I was driving to the dollar store and I started bawling. It's been five years. It's so weird, but I appreciated the moment because I know the relationship is not gone. That is a beautiful comment. Thank you, everybody, for this. And we'll continue this conversation. I know I say our email address all the time. It's because we sincerely want to hear from you. We want to know where our audience is at. We want to know what's resonating and why. 
talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can hit us up. Real talk, RJ, our hashtag on Twitter. Uh, the tone of this show is about to change when we check in with Chief Alan Adam in just a moment. I wanted to remind you that the team at Westworld Computers powers our studio. It's the MacBook Pro that Sarah's on. It's the iMac that Sam's on. It's the iPad I'm using to check my Twitter. It's the iPhone that I got going. And, of course, they've got the full lineup there for you. But did you know that they also carry all of the audio brands that you're going to need to make sure you can turn up the volume on your summer barbecues, on those beach days? Maybe you're getting out into the woods alone kind of a day. You know, the Sonos system, by the way, at home as well, is leading the charge when it comes to the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connectivity. Waterproof. You can put them outside. Sonos is at the top of its game. And right now, if you order before the end of April, which means you've got just a couple of more days, either at westworld.ca or in-store in West Edmonton, you've got 12 months, no interest. That's how you can cover those payments on your new Sonos system at Westworld Computers. Also, big shout out to the team at Local Waste. I probably don't have to remind you that our email inbox also collects submissions for a little thing we call Trash Talk. It's how we wrap up our shows on Friday, and we want to hear from you. What's grinding your gears? Local Waste loves to talk trash. They've been doing it for more than 25 years, and they want to remind you air is free, but it's expensive to dump. So if your small business is stuck with a big bin, because the big multinational company will only lease you that one, give Local Waste a call. They can start you small and grow as your business grows at localwaste.ca. Well, we've been talking about this remarkable news release uh, yesterday sent from Athabasca Tribal Council. That's 11 First Nation and Métis Nations of the Regional Municipality of Wood Buffalo calling upon the province of Alberta in strong language to immediately change their approach to COVID-19. Chief Alan Adam returns to the show of the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation. Uh, Chief Adam, thanks so much for making time for us and a good morning to you. My understanding is you've spent the morning on the phone. Uh, what can you tell us about the call with the province? Uh, we had a call this morning with the province and uh, the province assured us that uh, they're not going to do nothing for the community of Fort McMurray in regards to helping out in regards to COVID-19. So that was plain language. I mean, you've, you've got what, 11 community leaders, 11 indigenous leaders, and that's basically how they put it to you. That's basically how they put it to us. There's no lockdown, no stay at home orders, no nothing. Um, the, the school board here in Fort McMurray, uh, Catholic school board, the regional uh, school board as well, had ordered a stay at home order for their students uh, with online learning. Uh, the Northland School uh, Division um, is controlled by the federal uh, provincial government and uh, they're, they're still uh, have to be remained open in the community. Uh, we're asking for online learning from uh, Minister for the outlying uh, communities as well, but uh, nothing was given. No lockdown, no stay home orders, no increase of uh, field hospitals, nothing at all. Um, there's no change. Uh, the, the condition continues to worsen and uh, there is nothing from the Alberta government that said that uh, they're going to improve uh, services here in Fort McMurray, which is very alarming because if you get into a car accident, if you have a heart attack, um, there is no help for you in Fort McMurray. Uh, the IC unit is all filled up with uh, COVID-19 patients and the acute care is being taken up by uh, people with COVID-19. So we are in a crisis right now and there is no plans for us and we are left on our own. 
to put it into perspective for people that aren't familiar with the region, uh, I'm pretty sure yesterday talking to Mayor Don Scott and in, in reviewing some numbers that they provided for us, I think uh, Fort McMurray, the, the hospital up there just expanded its ICU from set five beds to seven. Uh, to put that into perspective, I mean, that's one horrific highway crash away from the ICU being absolutely filled, never mind the implications of COVID-19. How bad is this in your community? I mean, when, when you look around your community members, what are you seeing right now? Well, from our community members, because of the, you know, the, the continuous uh, lobbying with the members to stay home, stay safe, stay six feet away, um, you know, ACFN at this point in time, uh, you know, we have zero cases in the community, but there are cases bec- uh, of other community members in the community. Uh, I think there's one confirmed case in Fort Chip now as we speak, and that individual uh, was here in Fort McMurray and went back to the community of Fort Chip with, with, where they went self-isolate. Um, and out of that, um, they became confirmed case uh, as of yesterday. So we do have one confirmed case in the community of Fort Chip. Uh, there are some confirmed cases in other communities in the rural area that are starting to pop up. And... Uh, like we said, Fort McMurray is the main hub of uh, the surrounding areas. It's our city. Uh, we rely on it very heavily. We rely on it for medical services. We rely on it for groceries uh, and everything else. So, you know, and when the major outbreak in those areas tend to happen, um, it puts a, a crisis on our people because, uh, you know, uh, we, one of our, our, our elders, um, you know, uh, I can't say uh, the name because of the family and stuff like that, but uh, we lost, uh, you know, one of the elders that was turned away from the Northern Lights Hospital because uh, they couldn't take him in. And unfortunately, he went there twice from my understanding and he was refused entry and he passed on. And this is why uh, we are uh, raising the alarms that uh, there is something wrong. And yet uh, Alberta Health Services uh, said that... uh, there's nothing uh, worse. There's nothing serious going on in Fort McMurray. It's all under control. But yet, when I talked to Mayor Don Scott this morning, uh, Mayor Don Scott said that uh, we are out of control and uh, we don't know what to do. So, uh, further to that, I've been on the phone with Minister Miller this morning uh, from Canada, and we've also been on the phone with uh, Minister Serrano and Minister uh, Wilson, uh, Doctor Hinshaw as well. You know, this morning at seven thirty. And that's nothing's going to be done. Uh, you know, it's 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 very alarming, and it's uh, it's striking that uh, the province would take uh, profit over people because that's what it's all about here in the, in this region. Or you know, the industry camps are filling up with uh, um, patients of their own and everything and stuff like that. And uh, I only found out yesterday that the industry had an outbreak. Put them all together, there was over 2,000 people confirmed cases within the industry in the last month. And, uh, you know, um, it's very alarming to me that the only way I found out was through the media because uh, no government official had warned me or told me of anything of this magnitude of the outbreak in those regions. Well, Chief, the numbers are astounding. Like, to give people a sense of the case surge in the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo, 
um, like these numbers as of yesterday at the CNR. Keep in mind, these are numbers that are not included in Fort McMurray's numbers. Okay, Uh, 632 cases, 300 of them active at the CNRL Horizon site, 300 active cases, CNRL uh, active cases at Suncor's base plant, 145 active cases, Syncrude Mildred Lake site, 195 active cases. Uh, CNRL Albion site, 21 active. Imperial Oil Curl Lake site, 14 active. I mean, that's an astounding number. Um, that almost, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that represents, that would represent, like, if they counted toward Alberta's numbers, uh, off the top of my head, about half of the cases we have in Alberta right now. If I, uh, I might be wrong on that. Let me double check that number. Sarah can do that. We have a fact checker on site now, which is great. But, Chief, these are these are, are remarkable and troubling numbers. Um, I hesitate to use a wildfire analogy considering sensitivities in the region. It wasn't too long ago, uh, but Mayor Scott was sounding the alarm on this show yesterday as well. What did the chief medical officer of health, what did Dr. Dina Hinshaw have to say to you? Uh, didn't say anything. Didn't, uh, there's no change of action. Uh, just stay the course, and uh, they're rolling out their vaccination plan for Fort McMurray. Um, uh, they're they're saying uh, get the federal government. This is all the federal government's fault because of the slow vaccination rollout here in this region. Um, you know, the, the province got to uh, uh, take the ownership of uh, Alberta and start rolling out the vaccination. And the Fort McMurray needs a. Uh, uh, vaccination rollout plan for Fort McMurray residents, um, you know, and uh, let's get that done and let, let's start that vast max uh, vaccination for Fort McMurray because we need a vaccination uh, clinic that's going to be run 24 hours. Why I say 24 hours? Because we work in the oil sands here and the oil sands work 24 hours. We have guys going to work and going home at night at eight o'clock and going to sleep and getting up. So we need a 24-hour, what you call it, uh, field hospital pop-up that would accommodate uh, uh, the the mass, uh, vast uh, rollout of the vaccination. Plus, it will secure uh, beds uh, for uh, patients that need it because uh, we cannot say that patients don't need that field hospital. Uh, They're being told to go home and uh, hope for the best. And that's not good enough, uh, you know, uh, we are we are here to serve uh, our people and you know we're here to protect as much lives as possible we are elected officials and that's our job and i can't see and understand why the province would uh, take a different course um you know it, is is this jason kenny's platform uh, because it's definitely not what fort mcmurray residents want to see chief uh The premier himself uh, earlier this week alluded to uh, indigenous vaccine hesitancy as one of the driving forces behind this outbreak in Fort McMurray. What's your response to that? I think that's ludicrous. Um, You know, that's uh, that's a bold statement to make in regards to false information. Uh, That's just the premier's uh, position. You know, when when he gets caught with uh, his hands in his pocket and doing nothing, he starts blaming people right away of the actions of others. Uh, You know, ACFN has zero cases in in Fort Chip right now. Uh, You know, the community of Fort Chip has one case confirmed yesterday. Uh, There are other cases around, uh, you know, and they're popping up, I think, two in Fort Mackay, uh, I think six in Fort uh, Anzac, I think, and everything. Uh, zero in Chippewan Prairie. You know, the Conklin uh, areas, they're nothing. There's nothing. And yet, six, seven, 
eight, nine, nine people I could count from three communities that have confirmed cases within the within the, the Aboriginal communities. And those uh, nine people all came from Fort McMurray. You know, and, it's, and you cannot say that this was our fault. This was strictly at the hands of the province. Minister Serrano, you dropped the ball here. It was a big mistake that was done by AHS and they left us on our own. Uh, Fort McMurray is on our own. Uh, there is no help coming from the provincial government at this point in time. What is the federal? Uh, what's the federal government said to you? you? You mentioned you've been corresponding with them. The federal government is uh, waiting for us to see what kind of plan of action that we could do. You got to remember, the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction in Alberta. Yep. But the federal government has jurisdiction uh, over the Aboriginal people, and if we have to exercise our jurisdiction as the Aboriginal with the federal government, we will exercise our jurisdiction. Yeah. What would that look like? Well, that, what would that look like if we were to exercise our jurisdiction with the federal government? Um, if if we need to, we could get uh, we could lobby the federal government to focus in on all of uh, the vaccination rollout here in Fort McMurray. It, it will give us the right to uh, also uh, see if we could get the army to come in to pop up a field hospital and get the army to assist with the rollout of, of a vast va- uh, vaccination here in Fort McMurray as well. Not only for the Aboriginal communities or the reserves or urban, whatever, but for everyone in the Wood Buffalo. I'll tell you this. Uh, if, if there's going to be one day where Jason Kenney might lose the election two years ahead of the election, it might be the day that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau sends in the army to set up a field hospital to look after the people of Fort McMurray of Canada's oil sands capital. That might be the day that he loses the election two years before the election. So you've you've come up with with, uh, you know, you, you write uh, as part of this news release, you, you sign off on it, as did uh, leaders, uh, chiefs in other communities, 11 First Nations and Métis communities metis nations represented on this letter yesterday declare a stay-at-home order establish isolation units in in hotels for people able to quarantine establish a mass vaccination program expand rapid testing sites uh, establish a field hospital to restrict business to essential services only a community-wide curfew checkpoints at the interest entrance to all hamlets move to online learning only and enforce mask and social gathering bylaws for people that are going to say, okay, well, I mean, why can't you just enact all those steps yourself? I mean, this, this provincial government's being on personal responsibility. Why can't you just do that? Why can't you and Mayor Scott and, and other you know, indigenous leaders in the region? Why not? We cannot do anything in that regard because it needs to be issued by the province. We could, if, if the only authority that we have here in Fort McMurray area, if the province was to say to shut down with the bars and stuff like that, uh, they could do that from the from the municipal point of view, uh, you know, stay home order, maybe by, by law uh, that could happen. But it, it's all on the province side right now. And the province is, is like I said this morning, uh, you know, Minister Serrano just basically plain out said no, nope, no changes to Fort McMurray. Uh, the plan is in place, uh, but there is no plan. Uh, there is supposed to be an isolation unit here uh, popped up for Alberta Health Services. The mayor, Don Scott, doesn't even know where this isolation unit is, doesn't even know the address, nothing. I don't even know where it is. I don't even, I only heard of it when the minister mentioned it uh, uh, this morning or yesterday and stuff like that. But uh, 
there's nothing, nothing here in Fort McMurray for the people. Uh, we're here to defend on ourselves, and uh, you know, with the community and the commute of uh, uh, of people coming from all over, uh, that's where it's at right now. And I got something. No worries, on my we can let you go. Uh, yeah, uh, can I can I ask you just? You won't even get the door and come back because I want to ask you a question that's really important. Go grab the okay. door. Let me get to let me get to some of the comments here. Um, I love this. Can I can I just reiterate how much I love doing live shows? There's such an energy to a live show. We're talking to Chief Allen Adam, by the way. If you're just joining us, I've seen that our numbers have jumped a little bit on those that are jump uh, that are um, you know joining us live right now. Uh, there's an energy that comes with a live show that you don't get otherwise. Erica says on the chat, the province has targeted vaccination, but the target should be more flexible. When an issue pops up like this in Fort McMurray, there should be the ability to quickly address it uh, again. There's a wildfire metaphor. You know, you don't leave, you know, you don't leave the planes sitting on the runways. So you have them all over the province just in case if a part of the province is on fire, you deploy your aircraft, you get them up there, right? You, you, you deploy professionals to, to deal with it. Greg says the, the feds really need to find a way to force change here. This is risking the lives of citizens. Emma says, you know, the last time, as a matter of fact, I'm going to leave Emma's comment until Chief Alan Adams back to talk to us. He's back with us. Uh, a comment here, and, and I'm going to let you go. I know you have to go, but, but Emma says the last time that Chief Adam was on Real Talk was to discuss the incidence of rare cancers uh, being ignored. And now this is being ignored, too. Uh, these are people who are loved and deserve life. Uh, are, you know, I mean, is there that sense in the community? It is a sense. Uh, it's a sense of fear. Uh, and the fear should never happen. But that's the province's game. Uh, they always play the fear factor. Uh, they always blame somebody else uh, for their actions. Uh, they don't take responsibility. And, uh, you know, I'm going to uh, continue to work on uh, asking assistance from the federal government. And uh, we will be asking for a field uh, hospital to be popped up here in Fort McMurray uh, with the feds. We could do that. Uh, from the from the Aboriginal communities, because the feds are uh, responsible for us. Um, you know, uh, we are the wards of the federal government uh, as being First Nations. It's different than the Métis community, and it's different than Albertans. Uh, and we have uh, the 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 authority to ask the federal government to intervene. And and if we call in the army to come pop up a field unit here in uh, field hospital here in Fort McMurray and roll out a vast uh, a vaccine campaign for Fort McMurray itself. Uh, that's, that is available before us. And Minister uh, Miller uh, expressed that to me uh, this morning as well. And he said that whatever you want, Chief, you, you call us if you need the help and uh, we will come to help uh, in ways that we can. Uh, talking about, of course, the Honorable Mark Miller, uh, Federal Minister of Indigenous Services. Can First Nations declare their own states of emergency? Yes, uh, ACFN has been in a state of emergency ever since uh, the pandemic broke, uh, was unveiled uh, last March. Uh, we always renew our state of emergency every 30 days. So ACFN has been in a state of emergency for well over a year now. Well over a year. Uh, yeah. are, are there other contributing factors? Uh, is, is, is that just pandemic related or, or might that be with things like boil water advisories and, and other contributing factors too? It's just the pandemic factor. Okay. So I wanted to ask you this and, and we'll let you go. We appreciate your time. Um, uh, Chief Alan Adam, our guest. So you, you get off the call with the province. You don't hear what you're looking to hear. You, obviously this, this striking news release doesn't land in a way you would have hoped except for to grab in a stranglehold public attention, which you know is powerful. Uh, I know you stayed on the call after the fact. 
um, with your fellow indigenous leaders. What did you decide? You, you said you're talking to the feds about a field hospital. What's your next play? What's your next step? Well, what we're asking for right now is that we're asking for all the First Nations and the Métis uh, communities of uh, Wood Buffalo to pull your kids out of school immediately. Uh, all the kids get pulled out of uh, Northland school immediately. Pull your kids out of there. Uh, if the province is not going to issue that, uh, uh, as the as the president of uh, the Athabasca Tribal Council, I'm asking all the First Nations from the surrounding areas of Wood Buffalo to pull your kids out of uh, Northland School Division and force Northlands into online uh, schooling. Uh, we could get that done, uh, you know, and uh, I, I strongly uh, uh, issue that same warning to our counterparts, the Métis uh, of uh, Fort McMurray and the surrounding areas. Pull your kids out of school right now. Uh, do that in, in show of support in regards to what we want to get done <clears throat> uh, because this will... Uh, continue to say that we are taking drastic measures to uh, reduce the spread, you know, and uh, even though uh, we are being blamed for this and uh, we are not definitely the, the, the blame for the outbreak, uh, but we are here to assist to stop the spread. And why I say we are here to assist is because what we've done over the last year in the First Nations community to reduce the spread of COVID-19 uh, and continue on lobbying with our people and everything. I know it was a hard-fought battle, but look at the the containment that we've done in our communities. And if uh, that don't show uh, leadership or that don't show commitment, well, I don't know what else is. But uh, what happened here in Fort McMurray, uh, it, it had nothing to do with the mayor and council. It all had to do with the Alberta Health Services because of the community and it is a commute place where people come and go, and we have to get that under grips. If not, uh, our our numbers are going to continue to spiral out of control. And when that happens, we have no medical system here because the health system has broken. Heather uh, tweets at me. She says, this makes me want to weep. Uh, with grief and anger she says i have no words respect to chief allen adam for acting responsibly for showing leadership in his community it's appalling that the province was so callous in response to these leaders uh, chief allen adam is the chief of the athabasca chippewan first nation thank you for your time today we appreciate it thank you and uh, thank for having me on the show and everything and like i said you know we will do everything in our part to help the people of fort mcmurray as an aboriginal community we are extending our hand out there to you to give assistance in every way possible. And uh, we are very concerned about the residents of uh, Fort McMurray. And I hope that, you know, and we pray that everybody uh, does well and pulls out free, you know, pulls out of this uh, ordeal in a safe manner. And that, you know, we could, you know, walk away and say we've done it. But if we don't do nothing, then we are in dire straits right now. And there is no help from the province. And that's a shame. That's Chief Alan Adam, uh, as mentioned, Chief of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. We are in dire straits here, he says. Uh, be loud. That's my first bit of advice to you. Be loud. Speak out. Send emails to your MLAs. Send emails to the Premier. Call. CC us on those emails. Talk at ryanjesperson.com so we don't have to speculate. We don't have to say things like, I bet you hundreds of Albertans are writing in on this, or I bet you thousands of Albertans are contacting their elected officials. We're keeping receipts. And so we invite you to in include us in that process. Be loud on Twitter, use hashtags, and in real life, lawn signs, sidewalk chalk, 
window dressings, bumper stickers, be loud, be clear about what your expectations are of your community leaders, those that ran campaigns on platforms to serve you and to put the province in a better place when they leave than when they took over. Be very clear about where you'll park your vote, where you're donating your dollars, where you're going to direct your volunteer service. Let your fellow Albertans, let your fellow Canadians know how you feel about them and how you're willing to support their plight. And of course, tell everybody you know about that interview with Chief Alan Adam and make sure that you share it. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel right now. You can smash that like button so YouTube's algorithm will push this interview out and expand it. I'm going to be releasing clips later on my Twitter at Ryan Jesperson. Encourage you to follow me there. And of course, you can subscribe to our podcast as well. Thanks to everybody that rates the podcast that leaves a little bit of a comment. These things are huge to us and we're grateful for everybody that does. Also so grateful for the support of our sponsors, and that includes the amazing team at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Mark, Michelle, Michael, uh, they're the local owners employing local folks, and they've kept their drive throughs open throughout this pandemic. They love when you're passing through and you let them know you're a real talker. Now, for a few more days, uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to let them know you're a real talker, and everybody's going to smile, but... Starting the first week of May, Monday, May 3rd, we're going to start telling you about, well, let's call them benefits of uh, partnership. Let, let's let's call them, uh, you know, Sam Brooks, I know you're so excited about this. So am I. Every single month, we're going to come up with a different promo. It's going to be maybe a special meal, uh, maybe a flavor of Blizzard, maybe like a two for one on something like the Dairy Free Dilly Bar. Who knows? If you could dream up a deal right now, this Man, is a I'm dangerous all over exercise. All of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They said that maybe we could do like a real talk meal where we'd pick our blizzard, our burger, and maybe throw some onion rings or something in there. Oh, and do you got to like, throw onion rings in there. You know, do as good onion rings. Yeah. Or maybe it's just maybe it's just two things of onion rings and a blizzard. I nah, you got to have some, you got to have a burger in there. I think you got to have a Well, see, these are the debates we're going to have. And why am I doing this while I'm hungry? What a stupid idea. The benefits <laughs> of community, thanks to our friends at DQ. They start Monday, May 3rd. Also a big shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping. They're set to go. Shovels in the ground. I mean, this is when they start putting plans into action, dream into reality. Check out landscapeedmonton.ca. They've got some great examples of the transformative impact that their work has whether it's curb appeal from the front of the house maybe you're thinking about listing it or renting it out maybe you want to create that backyard oasis because you're not going to disneyland this summer like you told the kids you might it's just not going to happen maybe you got a little extra cash in your jeans because of that maybe now's the time for that outdoor pizza oven landscapeedmonton.ca is where you'll find the team at eden landscaping We've got great shows in store to come uh, as we get into tomorrow and then Friday. Of course, we've got lots on the go. We're going to be tackling the stories that matter to you, Real Talkers. And that's because we're able to do that because you're letting us know those stories matter. I'm going to leak a little something right now because I'm so excited to talk to this guy before. Tomorrow, an exclusive with Ed the Sock. Yeah, Ed the Sock. On Real Talk, that guy's been talking real for decades. We're going to get into it, and we'll talk to you then.